0: Well, amen. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to Mark chapter 9 this morning. Mark chapter 9. Uh, We're going to be looking at a large section in the middle of the chapter, Mark 9, 14 through 29. Uh, As you turn there, let me just remind you a little bit of last week and enable us to pick up where we left off. Um, In Mark chapters 8 through 10, uh, the gospel writer Mark is narrating... Jesus' journey to Jerusalem. He was up in Caesarea Philippi, and he begins to make his way down to Jerusalem. And on the way, Jesus predicts his own death on three occasions. We've already looked at one of those occasions. It's between the first and the second occasion that the first part of Mark chapter 9 occurs. And in this section, Jesus is going to take some time to teach some valuable lessons to the 12, to the disciples. And uh, in order to do that, Jesus breaks the 12, up into two groups. He starts by taking three, the inner circle, Peter, James, and John, up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. There these three must learn that Jesus is unlike any other person who's ever existed. He's greater. He's greater. uh, People even like Elijah and Moses don't compare to Jesus. Jesus is a prophet in the form of Moses but he's greater because he's God's anointed son and king. And so the disciples, the three disciples, must learn that lesson. Next, in, in our text, the one we'll look at today, Jesus comes down the mount and enters the real world below to teach the other nine disciples a lesson, or nine of them in the valley below, and Jesus will teach them. So the way the text goes, Jesus leaves the glory and the glow and the heavenly voice in the mountain... And he, he descends into the dark scene in the valley below. Uh, for it is possible for followers of Jesus to learn on mountaintop experiences. You know, glorious experiences with Jesus. We can learn that way, but we can also learn in the valley. In the real world of challenge and opposition and failure. So Jesus' lessons for the nine will come as they observe him perform an exorcism of a demon from a young boy... And the way I look at this text, I think it breaks up into five acts, five stages in the the drama of Scripture here. And so I want to look at the first one with you, the first one I call the chaotic scene, verses 14 through 18. Why don't you look there in your Bible, verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out. And they were not able. So Jesus comes down from the mountain with the three disciples and they find a chaotic scene. They find the disciples here surrounded by a crowd being harassed again by the scribes. As soon as Jesus arrives on the scene, as is probably fairly typical, the, the crowds and the scribes notice and they swarm to him. The crowds can't resist him, and so this will only add to the buzz or the chaos around Jesus. so so Jesus then asked the scribes, what are you arguing with my disciples about? But the scribes don't even have the, the, the chance to answer because a father in interjects. The father explains that he wanted the nine disciples to come and to heal his demon-possessed boy. His son was suffering from a very severe form of demonic possession that brought all kinds of of dramatic physical effects and threats to the child. So the father wants help. But instead of helping, the nine disciples uh, were not able, the text says. Do you see that in the text? It just struck me as I read this over and over. Every time I read it, they were not able. A little phrase at the end of this first act is uh, based off of a, a very powerful word in Greek in the original it's a word that Mark will use from time to time in his gospel. He doesn't use it very frequently, but, you know, so for instance, in Mark chapter 2, he describes those people who are healthy, they are whole, they have no need of a physician. So they're the, the not able, they're, they're healthy, they're whole. In Mark chapter 5, when Jesus is dealing with the, the, the man with the legion of demons, he says nothing or no one was strong enough, was able to chain the man and to do battle with him. So the father's comments in our text means that the disciples were not strong to help. They were not whole or healthy. This is strange for the disciples, because on other occasions, these disciples had had success over demonic beings. Remember, Jesus sent them out two by two on other occasions, and they had seen uh, people being released from the demons that plagued them. But you know, so, so now they've got this golden opportunity, right? There's nine of them at the base of the mountain, and this man comes, and, and, and they're not able to do anything. They managed to make a mess out of the situation. So Jesus and the three come down into the valley and they find crowds swarming, scribes arguing, disciples failing, and a father pleading. That leads to act two in the story, what I call the initial response. Look in your Bible at verse 19. And Jesus answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Here Jesus' response comes first in verse 19. And his response includes three things. It's very simply, I'll work through verse 19 very quickly. It, it, It involves an opening exclamation, two questions, and a command. First, he calls them... A faithless generation. Of course, we've looked at the word generation before in Mark's Gospel. We know that this is not normally a good word in Jesus' language, especially when you attach the word faithless to it. I think personally that Jesus is addressing every person who's gathered at the base of that hill. Those, Those people, the disciples, the scribes, the multitudes, all of them. They're part of a faithless generation, a generation who doesn't have faith. Second, Jesus has two questions here, which I think reveal either his frustration or sadness with the situation. You can, you can, you can feel that, can you not? In just the words, how long? How long am I going to be with you? How long will I bear with you? And then Jesus gives a command, a simple command. Bring them to me. Bring them to me. And the crowds obey immediately. They bring him to him. And then we see the demon's initial response. The demon's initial response. As soon as a demon is in the presence of Jesus, he violently affects the boy. I think that the demon must have known that Jesus is just about ready to bind the strong man and his house, Satan, again. The reaction of the demon here and, and causing the things he does with the boy, boys, it's, I think it coordinates well with what we've seen of demons and how they respond to Jesus earlier in the text. You remember Mark chapter 5? The man with the legion of demons, legions of demons. And when he sees Jesus, Jesus uh, comes off the boat and immediately the, the demoniac comes charging at Jesus and shrieking at him and yelling, and then he falls at Jesus' feet. Collapsed at his feet. Powerless. It's safe to say, as I look at these two demons in response to Jesus, demons don't like to be in the presence of Jesus. They don't like it. And so, our, in our text, what does this demon do? He throws the boy into convulsions on the ground and makes him foam at the mouth. This is this is the real event. Now, the action slows significantly here in verses 21 through 24. And we come to what I'm going to describe. You see, Act Three there, the important discussion. Okay, so you got a boy foaming at the mouth, lying on the ground, convulsing, and Jesus has a conversation. Let's look at verse 21. And Jesus asked his father, "How long has, it, has this been happening to him?" And he said, "From childhood," and has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father, the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. These four verses are very important in Mark's story. They reveal an important discussion that's going on between Jesus and the father. One of the interesting things I found about this story is this same account is given in three of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And this is the only Gospel that records this this part of the story, this conversation. And Mark actually gives a great deal of time to it, gives four verses, which is longer than even the miracle itself, the actual miracle where Jesus comes and delivers, Jesus does it, it's done. But he gives greater length of time to this, and so Mark is making much out of this conversation. And that's good because as we come to this point in the story, you might be like me this week, and I ask, Well, you know, why is Jesus taking so much time here? I mean, why doesn't he move quickly to heal this boy? I mean, this boy is on the ground foaming at the mouth. What's going on? Jesus is not a doctor, he doesn't need to ask all these questions, he can just heal him. But he stops and he asks a question. He has a conversation. And so I think the answer to that question is, well, you know, first, you know, why would Jesus do? Well, Jesus is in complete control. The boy's gonna be just fine. He's with Jesus. But by asking this question, having this conversation allows the man, the father, to explain the seriousness of the, the demonic possession of his son, just how bad it is, how devastating the boy the boy is. And it allows Jesus to emphasize the most important part of the story, and that is the need for people to believe in him, to have faith in him and his power. And so Jesus asks some questions that lead the father to respond in two ways in verse 22. First, the father describes the demon's hold on the boy. The demon has been doing these things since he was a small child. He's been doing things like throwing him into the fire and throwing him in the water to destroy the boy. That's how bad this is. But then the father doesn't just stop there. The father asks for help. He's, he's not just content to describe the, the boy's history with the demon. But he does what I would think any loving father would do in a situation like that. And he, what does he do? He pleads for help. He cries out to Jesus for help. If, if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There's so much I could say about the statement that the father makes, but one of the things I'll point out, I want you to notice that he identifies completely with his son. He says, have compassion on us. Help us. Jesus' answer then comes in verse 23, and it's, it's an amazing, deep answer. Short verse, amazing answer. Jesus' answer has two parts as well. Look at the first part of verse 23. Jesus says, if you can. You see that in your text? you look looking in your Bible? Okay. If you can. Well, what does that mean? If you can. It seems a little disconnected, but did you notice that those three words are the words that the father started with in his request? You look above it, just in verse 22, look in your Bible right above it. You might even consider marking this. Okay. Just above it, in verse 22, when he gets to the request, he says, but if you can do anything, help us. See that? And so many Bibles will be like the ESV here, the NAS, others. They'll put quotation marks around it. Jesus, I believe, is repeating a part of the man's statement. But the English translations take this in one of two ways. And I want to just show you this, because I think that there are you know, people in our congregation have different, different Bibles, I want to show you how they take it differently. And the difference can be seen in the punctuation. Okay, the punctuation in this text is an exclamation point in the ESV, but you realize that in the original there's no punctuation. It's just an interpretive thing that people producing this translation of the English Bible, they put in there. Okay, so there are translations like the ESV, the New American Standard, and say, if you can, if you can. Suggesting here that Jesus is pushing the responsibility for the healing back upon the shoulders of the Father. The Father must have faith in Jesus, if you can. All things are possible for the one who believes, Jesus says. So in the ESV reading that we've got in front of us, uh, Jesus responds to the Father's request by calling the Father to faith. The effect of this exclamation point is something like this. Jesus is saying, what do you mean, if I can, you must do something about this. You must have faith. It could be, if you can. But there are other translations, English translations, like the NIV, that put a question mark here, and that's my preferred preferred thing. So in ESV, I just put a little question mark there, if you can. Ben Witherington, I think, explains this really well to us. Here's a statement by, by Ben Witherington. He says, Jesus takes the if as a sort of honor challenge. Jesus' response is astonishment that, that anyone would question his ability. So Jesus' statement has the effect of saying, what do you mean if I can The Father here does not say, if you want. He says, if you can do anything. There's a big difference between if you want to do something, you can. And if you can, I think the the Father's statement is is less than a robust statement of faith in Jesus Christ. If you can do anything, well, I think the man has grown skeptical about Jesus' ability. Perhaps the disciple's weakness and representing Jesus well, has stripped this man of his hope. So he asks, if you can, and Jesus responds, if you can? Jesus then explains, all things are possible for the one who believes. With this statement, Jesus is clearly calling the Father to have faith in him. The man's boy can be healed if the father will put his faith in Jesus. But this phrase, all things are possible for the one who believes, is a difficult phrase. And so I want to talk about this a little bit. And I wanna, want us to, to think about how we should understand this. One of the ways I'll get into this is by asking, are all things actually possible to the one who believes in Jesus? Now, before I answer this question correctly, I want to start with a false view. Sometimes when I talk about false views, you don't get it that I don't believe this. Okay, But I think many of us do, so I reference it. Okay, This is a false view. This is the wrong way to see the text. This, this phrase is one of the most abused phrases in all of Mark's gospel. Many preachers and Christians proclaim that faith is the way to a healing or a miracle. And then put pressure on people to conjure up more faith for the healing. All things are possible for the one who believes, so what you need to do for your healing is believe more. Many people take this way, but I want you to think about that for a while. I want you to think about what you know to be true in the Scriptures. I'm going to remind you of a few important lessons here. Remember the Apostle Paul? Remember that guy? (laughs) Wrote a lot of the New Testament. I was reading in the Corinthian epistles this week, and I found that on three occasions, Paul prayed that God would remove his thorn in the flesh. Remember that? Three occasions, I poured out my heart to God. I prayed that he would remove this thorn in the flesh. The messenger from Satan that buffets me. And yet God did it in those occasions. What's the problem? Did Paul not have enough faith? Well, maybe, but not likely, right? I mean, he's the apostle Paul. Okay, well, maybe, maybe he he did it though. That's Paul, but never Jesus, right? Remember Jesus in the garden? What he prayed? If it is possible, I pray that this cup passes from me. Take this cup from me. But the Father says. It's not possible. It's not possible. And the problem is not that Jesus didn't have enough faith to avoid the crucifixion. If I had enough faith, could I bring my grandmother that I love dearly? Could I bring her back from the dead? If I had enough faith, could I change the color of my graying hair? If I had enough faith, could I bring healing to my son or daughter that I greatly love? I think the answer is no, as long as we understand it in this false view. I, I can't control these things with faith. It's a false view to say that conjuring up more faith will bring a healing or a miracle. However, now let's let's get back in this phrase again and let's try to understand. How can we understand all things are possible for one who believes? And I want to give you what I would call a right view or one right way of looking at it and maybe it'll be helpful to you i think we start or i would start by proclaiming that god can do whatever he wants to do or desires to do that is just okay so okay i transition from the one i don't like to this is the view that i like god has unlimited ability okay so it starts there right this phrase, all things are possible, is used just a chapter later in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 27. And there, when Jesus uses it, the disciples are lamenting that it's very difficult. It might be, they, they feel like it's impossible for a rich person to be saved, but, but Jesus says all things are possible with God. And so whatever you believe about this phrase in Mark 9 and 10, all things are possible for the one who believes, we need to start by saying that God has complete power and authority. All things are possible with God. He can help any person that he wants. We should not put limits on God to say that he's unable to do something. Yet, sometimes, in New Testament Scripture and in life, God does not intervene because it doesn't fit within his comprehensive plan for the entire created order. In other words, God does have unlimited power, but it functions according to his sovereign will. I'm going to give the words of an old commentator uh, on the scripture, uh, William Lane. I really respect him uh, as he has written many good resources on Mark and Hebrew and some other books, and this is what he says about it. And it's kind of complex, so we're going to read it slowly. Lane says, When faith confronts the demon, God's omnipotence, you know what that is? God's all-powerfulness is its soul assurance. It's the sole consolation. When I face the demon." God's power, all powerfulness. But then he said this and God's sovereignty is its only restriction. God has unlimited power, but it functions according to his sovereign will and purposes in this world. And so, with this understanding, Of the text in mind, we know all things are possible for one who believes in Jesus because Jesus has unlimited ability to help. I'm not going to limit that. Jesus here presses the man's skepticism. And in verse 24 in the text, get back to the text, the man immediately replies. So Jesus presses him, all things are possible for the one who believes. And you see how the man replies? I believe. I believe. Help my unbelief. Here, the reply is powerful. It's powerful because I think in these two little statements, I believe, help my unbelief, you have like this, this conscious decision of the man to trust God. You ever done that to yourself before? I trust you, Lord. You can say it out loud sometimes. I believe. But then following it, you have a recognition or admission of his own human weakness. Help. My unbelief. I think we can all relate to this statement. It's powerful. John Flavel, the old English Puritan, once wrote this about our human weakness. He said, I love the Puritans because they kind of help us understand our own souls a bit. Bible said, there are many things that afflict and grieve the people of God from without, but all these outward troubles are nothing compared to the troubles that come from within. There are many inward troubles that make us groan, but none more than this, the doubt that we feel within. Labels wrestling through the Puritan, the doubt that he feels as a follower of Christ within. Christian faith involves ongoing battles against our own unbelief. And so what I want to encourage you with verse 24 in your Bible, underline it, and let's learn from the impulse of this man. Learn from the impulse of this. This is not a bad thing to say to God. I believe, help my unbelief. It's a good thing. The man does not dwell on the nature of his own lackluster faith, but he immediately cries out to Jesus, help me. And men and women, I think that's a good impulse for us as followers of Jesus Christ. Lord, I believe this is my conscious decision, but I'm, I'm weak in faith. Help my unbelief. Help me to grow. That's where the narrative picks up again in Gains of Momentum in verses 25 through 27, where we come across what I call Act 4, the powerful miracle. Look with me at verse 25. And when Jesus saw a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of him. The boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up and he arose. Aren't you glad with the way that Jesus responded to the man's request? I mean, remember what the man just said. I believe, help my unbelief. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't say, nope. I can't help you. I just wanted that first part, the I believe part. That's not what Jesus does, but Jesus doesn't answer him with words. Jesus helps a man unbelief by performing a miracle. I'm sure this man's faith will grow after this. Now, the actual account of the miracle is short. Jesus gives two commands to the demon come out of him and never enter him again, which I think at least implies that it's possible once the demon was removed for it to go back into the same company in some cases, but not for this demon. This demon is forced out and the effect of the exorcism is quite difficult for the child to endure so much so the people think he's dead. He looks like a corpse, but he's not because Jesus comes and lifts him up with his hand and the miracle is complete. But although the miracle is complete, the story is not end and there is an end note in the next two verses. And so when you study your Bible and you come to a narrative and you have final comments like this, okay, so the story's done the miracles performed, and then there's like two or three verses on the end. Those two or three verses are extremely important. Often you find the whole purpose for the story and the miracle from the author's perspective. And so here we have what I call the private instruction. Two verses of private instruction, verses 28 and 29. Look in your Bible one last time. said, and when he had entered the house, as Jesus. His disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. So The disciples here, they want to know why they, they couldn't do it. They performed other miracles successfully before. Why not this one? And Jesus gives them a very simple answer. And I just want to, in the moments we have left, make three statements about his answer, his reply in uh, verse 29. The first statement I will make about his answer is that Jesus seems to teach here that there are differing degrees of demonic oppression or opposition. You say, well, where do you see that in the text? I see it in the first words, this kind. This kind comes out only through prayer. I think Mark emphasizes more about the power of this demon in this text than in any other, uh, of his other accounts about demons, huh? So in my count, as I read through this narrative four different times, he talks about how the demon was affecting the boy, or, you know, making him, you know, convulse on the ground and foam at the mouth and become rigid and all these things, throwing him in the fires. Mark just does all this description of the demon's power over this boy. So it seems to me that both Mark and Jesus understand this demon to be more, a more powerful force than other demons. Now, Jesus' statement, if that's true, about prayer then, does not mean that the disciples shouldn't normally pray. Okay, it's not like, you know, I I would just say this. Anytime you're performing an exorcism, it's a good idea to pray. But the power of this demon makes the need for prayer even more obvious. That leads to my second statement about this reply from Jesus. The second statement is, Jesus' main point in the whole story, and this verse is to emphasize the need for prayer. The need for prayer. The disciples were weak because they were weak in prayer. The disciples were not strong because they were not strong in prayer. Now, some translations we read uh, add by prayer and fasting. But you might have a translation that has that, and that's because some Greek manuscripts contain the word for fasting, but most do not, and I think it's better to just say through prayer. One of the reasons I would think that is, you know, remember the scribes' earlier rebuke of Jesus. The scribes' earlier rebuke, or rebuke the disciples by saying, they not asking, why don't, your, why don't your disciples fast? Why don't they ever fast? And Jesus says, basically explains, well, there's no need for them to fast while I'm still present. And so it would seem unusual to me to require, for Christ to require the disciples to fast at this point. He's simply emphasizing something. It's prayer alone that will remove this powerful demon. Okay, but I want to make one last statement about Jesus' reply. He's emphasizing prayer. But third, Jesus' answer, you need to pray, is different than in the parallel account in Matthew 17. And so as we close today, I want to turn over to Matthew 17. I want to read the parallel, just a portion of the parallel account and see that Jesus' answer here, you need to pray, pray," is different than what Matthew records. I just want to see that. I want to show you what I think that the Scriptures as a whole would, be, would emphasize to us. So Matthew 17, verses 19 and 20. Okay, It's going to sound really familiar for a while. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? Does that sound familiar? This is the same narrative. He said to them, Because of your little faith. For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of a mustard seed, you'll say to this mountain, Move from here to there and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. So Matthew Says the disciples ask the same question, and Jesus' answer is because of your little faith. But Mark says it's because you need to pray. So which is it? Which is right? I would say both. Both are right. I think Jesus says both of these things. The answer is do they need to have more faith, they have little faith, or do they need to pray? The answer is yes. For when we pray. It is because we believe in God. When we pray, it's because we know our own human inadequacies and weaknesses and we know that we have someone who is listening who has the power to save us. One man said it this week, said it this way this week. He said, prayerlessness is actually a mild form of unbelief. We pray because we have faith. Now, do you think the disciples intentionally thought or said in this account, I don't need Christ? Do you think they'd say that? I can do this. I've got this. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to pray about this one. I don't think so. I mean, I think it's probably not the case. I think this is probably something that they just instinctively did, they did unintentionally. They just went and they tried to help the boy. I think what's true is that they perhaps have grown cold and self-confident. So they don't pray. I think the same can be true of us, men and women, as followers of Jesus Christ. I'll start with myself. I've been a pastor now for two years at Colonial Baptist. And uh, I remember the first few weeks that I was here. Going to the hospital, to the funeral home on a visit, preparing for the new members class and feeling completely insufficient. I would pray to God on the way to the hospital. Lord, I don't know where I'm going. I mean, I really didn't. (laughs) I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where to park. I still don't know where to park in some cases. I don't know where to park. I don't know what to say. Lord, you need to help me. You need to help me. Now I've done some some of these things. I feel a little bit better about hospitals, funerals, visits, and new members' classes. And I have to consciously remind myself to pray. Are there tasks that you undertake now that used to prompt you to pray? But now you don't because you know how to do it. You've got this. You can help this person. Perhaps it's leading your spouse. Remember when you first got married? Men especially? No idea what you're doing? Lord, help me need lead leader. This is great. I've been married for years. And I, think, oh, I got this marriage. How hard is it? Get up. You know, kiss her a few times. Tell her I love her. Don't need to pray. About parenting. And when you, ch- you brought your child from the hospital for the very first time, you prayed before you ever got in the car with a car seat. You prayed as the, you strapped the, the baby in. You had no idea how to do this. You pray, Lord, give me safety as we travel. And yet we can get used to parenting. Say, I got this, how hard is it? You know, teenagers, it's kids. Perhaps it's performing your job at work. First day, afraid, prayer. Now, not so much. Teaching your Bible study classes, children, adult Bible classes. Used to scare you to death. You'd pray to the Lord, Lord, I need help. Deliver me. Give me wisdom. But now, I got this. You know what you're doing, you've been doing it for quite some time. Perhaps you should remember your own inadequacies and remember that it's time to pray. Perhaps you're facing new challenges. Do you like the father, have a son or daughter? who has a great need? Grandchild, what should you do? Pray. Do you like the disciples have a great opportunity to serve Christ? Then let us pray and believe that God can work mightily through us so that people's lives are changed for the glory of God. Let's pray together. Father, you know that I have found this story to be very challenging and convicting as a preacher of the gospel and as a follower of Christ. Lord, as we go through the text, we are reminded of the disciples, the nine disciples in the dark valley who forgot to pray. And uh, we see our own failures. Lord, we repent of them. We confess them before you in our sadness. Say, Lord, we don't want to discourage people from following Jesus. We don't want someone looking at us and saying they're not able, I'm not strong. Because we know that that could reflect upon the character and the, the almighty power of our God. So, Lord, forgive us and remind us of our own inadequacies. This week, may we be like the Father who had no other option. Nothing else could help to cry out to God, I believe you. Lord, help my unbelief. Pray that we would be reminded of our own inadequacies and may that push us to be a praying assembly. A praying assembly. Where Colonial Baptist Church cannot accomplish what you would have it to accomplish in the next 10 or 20 years until you return unless you help us. We need your help. We confess that now before you. In Jesus' name, amen.